everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. We all have the conversations we know we need to have. And very often the conversation we know we need to have is the one we had last, right? I will say that I want to work with families who want to deal with that and want to dive into that space and are looking for you know the, the help to do that. And so the only time I ask about money is when it comes to making like a really important decision that will have some ramifications. So for example, I'll say to clients, I don't need to know anything about your net worth. The only time I will care about it is when it comes to you giving money to your kids or setting aside money for your kids. Because the conversation is very different if you're leaving your kid $10,000 versus $10 million. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. I am super excited to have you on the show today for so many reasons that I think if it's cool with you, I have like 20 different lanes I want to go down. So I'm just going to jump right in if that's cool with you. Fire away. All right. So I think a good jumping off point would be to talk about your parents who came to Canada from Egypt. In what ways do you think you were raised differently than your friends whose parents weren't immigrants? Yeah, several. I've I've thought about this. I thought about this a lot growing up. So I think all of us have the generational divide with our parents, right? So everyone has the experience of their parents saying, and whatever the version is, fill in the gaps, right? I had to walk to school 20 miles in the snow, or when I was a kid, I got a nickel, you're getting a dollar. Everyone has that generational divide. I think when you're the son of or the daughter of immigrants, there's a massive cultural divide. And so I I thought about that a lot. And I think in fairness to my parents, I probably unfairly used it against them growing up. So when I went through sort of adolescence and hit that point of, and we've all hit that spot at some point, right? When you all of a sudden you think you're smarter than your parents, whether it's 12 or 16 or whatever the case may be. You know, I think when your parents are ESL, like English as a second language, you start to think, and I was, you know, pretty well spoken at a young age. You start to think, I'm I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. You're from another country. And Egypt and Canada are vastly different. It's not like they were Americans and we were being raised mm-hmm. in Toronto. So uh, I thought of, I thought about that a lot. And the third distinction in my particular family with my parents were also Christians, you know, leaving, you know, a strong religious culture to come to Canada. So I sort of had that division as well, which again, so every one of their views, we always think our parents are aliens and we always think our parents are trying to hold us back, right? For me, there was this added layer of you're, you're really aliens to me because you're from another planet and your values are so, are so ancient 
because they had conservative Christian values. You know, I reflected upon that a lot as I got older. And it wasn't until I started to hit my 20s when I really began to gain an appreciation for that. And it's funny now in my 40s, I am so grateful, A, for the cultural experience provided to me by that for a host of reasons. One, I think it just taught me the real value of sacrifice. They gave up so much. I think it also taught me that I have an attitude that I want to be able to be happy anywhere I live and not get too attached to one geographic location because my parents had to pick up and leave. And I also think growing up in a very nice culture of you know Canada, I always grew up with this appreciation that the world around you can change really quickly because I grew up hearing stories about what life was like in Egypt when they were young and then what life was like when my dad left. And I realized that it was only during the course of his lifetime through you know poor government policies, lots of different things can change and he had to leave. And that made me sort of realize growing up, like don't ever get too attached to one particular spot because you might need to adapt and pivot and do what's best. You know, the ultimate thing was do what's best for the next generation. So that's really helped me. And I'd say the last thing, and I didn't even know this until I you know, got into the work that I'm doing now or that I've been doing for the last few years, is growing up with immigrants gave me a high level of empathy for people who see the world differently. Because my parents spoke differently, they thought differently, traditions were different, cultures were different. And I think now when I meet people who view the world very differently and have all these different traditions and approaches, I just have this really broad bandwidth of appreciation for it because mm. something that's foreign to me is not hard to adapt to because I grew up in a culture around that. What was it like growing up in an Egyptian family? So for example, my family, not my dad, but my mom, her family came from uh, Naples. And so there were a lot of you know Neapolitan traditions and you know, the crazy foods and the dancing and all that kind of stuff. You know, what was it like for you with parents that were from Egypt? Was, were you, were, were you one of those families where they sort of separated and they wanted to assimilate as Canadians and they didn't want to, you know, get lost in the Egyptian culture or did they embrace it? My, my folks actually did a really good job of finding what I would say is like the right balance. So something my dad said when I was, I think probably in high school, he said this to me that really resonated and has influenced me a lot. He said, I didn't, he speaks with an accent, right? Calls me Polly. So Polly, I didn't leave Egypt um, for Egypt. I left Egypt for Canada. And it was basically his way of saying, I came to Canada for Canadian values and for Canadian culture. So that taught me, you know, at a pretty young age, and I think we lived this way, you know, English was my first language, you know, I was embedded in Canadian society, we were very pro Canadian, it was not, you know, my dad's attitude, and my mom's attitude was we are grateful to be in Canada, what an amazing opportunity it is to live here, we're so appreciative of it. And they were very encouraging of us sort of pouring ourselves back into our communities, our culture, all those things. Having said that, we still retained our Egyptian culture. So we went to Egypt, you know, we go for, you know, three or four weeks when we were young, I don't speak Arabic fluently, but you know, we spoke Arabic in the house. So I understood it. When I was in trouble, my parents would speak to me in Arabic. We grew up in a business family. My dad had an Egyptian food restaurant. We all worked there. So my dad worked there. My mom worked there. My brother, we were all part of that. So I grew up very much around Egyptian culture, but it was always very clear that Canada is our home country. We are Canadians of Egyptian heritage. And so pour yourself into your new country. And it was so interesting because he told me this story that when he first got to Egypt, he didn't associate and hang out a lot with other Egyptians. And that's just mind boggling to me. And so I said, why? And he said, because I didn't leave Egypt for more Egypt. I left Egypt for Canada. And he said, all the Egyptians that I hung out with when I first got to Canada were complaining about how much they missed Egypt. And he said, I didn't leave Egypt to come here to complain about what I missed, right? If you like Egypt that much, stay there. If you want a new opportunity, then move to somewhere else. 
So again, that just taught me this attitude really young that wherever you go, make the best of it. And if you're making a decision to go somewhere, you're going there for a reason, remind yourself mm -hmm. of that reason, make the most of it. And if you realize, Hey, the choice I made isn't a great spot. Great. Change it and go to the new spot and the new spot. So that was, that was do pretty you, cool. Do you feel Egyptian? Hmm. That's a good question. No, I would say I am culturally Canadian. I've used this example before, you know, I think, you know, we live in this world where everyone's always interested in someone's heritage and ethnicity. And I think our culture and our values unite us much more than our ethnicity fights and unites mm. us. So I, I, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm sitting on a bench somewhere and to my left is a guy with, you know, parents who were born and raised in Hong Kong, but this guy was born in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the other side of me is a guy who was born and raised in Cairo. Ethnically, I am very similar to the guy. We're both one, like I'm 100% Egyptian from an ethnicity standpoint, right? But culturally, I'm much more aligned with the guy who's got parents from Hong Kong because he was raised in Toronto, right? So, you know, that's the guy that I'm probably going to have a lot more in common with. That's the guy who's going to have more values in line with me. That's the guy who's going to have more experiences in line with me. So I would say culturally, I feel much more Canadian. I'm proud of Egyptian heritage, obviously. I think it's, I think it's cool. But more importantly, whether it's Egyptian or, or not, I'm just proud of my family's heritage. As I think, you know, we, we all should be. There's lessons to be learned from it. For sure. I want to talk about law school. We'll fast forward a little bit. You went to law school and in law school, you were a competitive debater. What attracted you to that? Oh gosh. I mean, what, what's not attractive about it? <laughs> um, well, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. That sort of thing, and I'm not really sure why, we could probably psychoanalyze me and figure it out, but that sort of thing freaks me out. Like it just, I, I, I have trouble um, separating myself from the debate of a topic and not making it personal. If I'm being really honest with you, it's really difficult for me to see, particularly how lawyers do it, you know, to, to debate an idea. So yeah. when I saw that you were doing this competitively, it was, I'm just, I'm wondering like, what, what was that that was attractive for you that you liked about it? Yeah. So I, th I think that, you know, fair point in terms of the distinction and you're right. It would be interesting to, to hear you unpack as to what it is that, and, and, and I imagine if we were going to guess if, if the connection for you is it's hard to separate the topic from the person, then mm -hmm. every single time you get into a debate, you are now exposing your personhood to risk, which is very for different sure. than your idea to risk. Right. For, for sure. Absolutely. Right. And so I think drawing that distinction, and if we can work on that, you have to surround yourself with people who can recognize we have ideas and we have people and we can separate the two. My ideas and, and even ideas in general, if you think about sort of the genesis of ideas or more importantly, the evolution of ideas, if we can't debate them, we can't evolve them. And if we can't evolve them, we can't progress as a society or as an individual. Like this works on like your individual level. It works in a small group dynamic level. And then it works on obviously a massive societal level, right? And yeah. so I'm yeah. a really big believer and take all of my ideas that I have in my head, all of my opinions and try to break them down because I want to evolve them. And that's how we develop. I mean, you know, training is the same way, right? Developing your business is the same way. Working in your marriage is the same way. It's the same principle, which is take what you currently think and take what you currently do and ask yourself, where can I improve this? But in order to do that, you have to be willing to challenge what you're doing, right? So mm -hmm. anyway, so all that to say, you know, turning it back to you, if we can create that separation and recognize this is done in the greater good, it's a little bit easier to keep it less personal. You know, for me personally, I think I've always just been interested in asking questions. You know, like I've never... 
you know, I grew up going to church and I was always that kid in Sunday school who wanted to read ahead and ask a question. And I've always been hyper curious about the world around me. I've just always wanted to understand everything and get to the bottom of it or get the truth out of it or figure it out. And so I think debate is a natural way. Like it, that, that's a natural extension of that because you're trying to figure out the right answer to something. I also think the other aspect of it is I really like, I really like sort of the idea of sport and, you know, debating an idea is in many ways sport. It's sparring, right? You take these ideas. I have a good friend of mine. We get together, you know, almost every weekend for the past, you know, three years or whatever. And every Saturday it's, you know, we're going to go for a three or four or five, sometimes six hour mountain bike ride or winter ski or lift weights outdoors, whatever it is. It's, but it's, that's just the forum. Really what we do is we're just discussing a whole array of topics and we're debating them. And he very much, he describes, I think it's a framework he, he, I think he may have borrowed from somebody else, but he says it's, he takes his idea, which is this prize fighter and he throws it in sort of the octagon with my idea and they fight each other. And then his prize fighter gets the shit kicked out of him. My prize fighter gets the shit kicked out of him. And then we come back to our separate corners, work on our idea a bit more and then come back. And it's, it's never personal. It's never, well, you're a moron for thinking that it's like, okay, I hadn't thought about it that way, but hold on. Have you thought about it this way? So for me, there's, there's a real value in that. There's a real value in sort of just the sport of exchanging ideas. When you graduated law school, you worked as a prosecutor. You worked as a litigator first and then as a, a, a prosecutor after that. Why did you want to be a prosecutor? Yeah. So not too far off from the reason that just outlined in terms of what attracted me to debating in general and law in general. So not taking anything away from all the lawyers who are in you know, civil litigation. It's a, it's a really cool profession and a, and a necessary one. But I found after a few years of it, no one had ever once come to me and said, you know, here's the case. Just make sure that the right result happens. It was yeah. always, here's the case, advance the cause of your client. That's a very, it's a very important distinction, right? Taking the cause of, of Rob versus, you know, make sure the right result happens are very distinct. So for me, when I think about careers, and I've, I've used this with, with clients lots, I say, that, you know, there's sort of two big aspects to your career decision. One is the, the P&P, right? One is the principle of it, and one is the practical aspect of it. And I think you, wanna, you want high marks on both as you get older. So the practical aspect of a career decision to me is what are you actually doing with your time, right? So I'm going to tell you, I'm in a lot, you know, you've got to do something for 40 to 60 hours a week. What do you want to do? Do you want to be on the phone? Do you want to be talking to people? Do you want to be in the stacks by yourself? Do you want to research? Do you want to travel? Do you want to move? Do you like lots of time to repair or do you like, you know, you know, ad hoc stuff? Like you got to figure out what you practically like doing. And then the second part of it is in, a, in principle, what do you want to be about? You're going to spend more time working in your life as we know than you will do anything else. All these important things we talk about, like health and family and spare time, you end up spending more time working. So it better be for a good cause. So for me, I became a prosecutor for the practical side of things was I wanted to be in court every single day. As a civil litigator, I did that for a few years and I spent a lot of time in an office writing about going to court, but I wasn't in court as much as I wanted to. Civil litigators in many respects have outpriced, you know, they've priced themselves out of the courtroom. Um, whereas a crown prosecutor is in court every single day. So I really wanted to be in court, wanted to be on my feet, asking questions, dealing with real issues, getting up in front of juries. I wanted to do all that and I wanted to do it in spades. And then from a principal standpoint, as a prosecutor, particularly here in Canada, the job was never get a conviction. The job was get the truth out in court. That sounds very idealistic and cliche. And obviously it's, it's, it, there's some nuance to it, but the role of a crown prosecutor in Canada was, you know, sort of vehemently pursue the truth in court. And you had an obligation to follow sort of like 
the obviously not just the law, but the professional standards and the ethics of the job. So an example of that would be if you're nine days into a jury case and a piece of evidence comes out that points in the favor of the accused, you have a legal and moral obligation to disclose that, even if it means you're going to lose the case. So I actually liked that aspect of the job. I liked the fact that I didn't have a client saying, Paul, go argue this or Paul, go argue that. I had a set of facts, a set of parameters, and my job was to advance the truth in court within those. That was very attractive to me from an ethical standpoint, principle standpoint too. What's the difference between a American prosecutor and a Canadian prosecutor? There's probably more than I'm aware of, but one of the big ones is there's no elections here for, so the, the chief prosecutor of a jurisdiction in Canada is called the crown attorney in the U S is district attorney. The crown attorney is a job you apply for. It's not an election. So popularity doesn't matter with respect to your job. So suddenly when you're doing a job that you are guaranteed now as a crown, right. As mm-hmm. opposed to only guaranteed for, you know, until the next election that changes, obviously any one of our mandates, right. We all behave differently if we're being, gov- you know, the, the, the scorecard always governs our behavior. Right. So I would say that's the biggest distinction. No one keeps official stats here. I don't, you know, I've never been a prosecutor in the States. I'm not sure how much they keep stats there. And I just think the overall culture here is different. You know, our approaches towards sentencing are a little bit different. Our approaches towards convictions, all those things, both pros and pros and cons of that. We don't have the death penalty here. We don't give, you know, in the States, you talk about these people who get sentences for 334 years. It's because they they stacked on, you know, you got 12 offenses, each one's 20 years, that's 240. We don't do that here, right? Like, so we don't have concurrent sentences in that regard. So I would just say the overall culture of it and the way the system is set up is very different. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. In what ways did being a prosecutor change your temperament? Shockingly, it made me much calmer, probably for two reasons. One is it gave me an outlet and I really needed it. So my wife met me when I was still a Bay Street, Bay Street's, you know, sort of the financial district of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I was still a Bay Street lawyer, right? So I'm working at this huge firm, I'm downtown and I was, you know, 28, 29, 30-ish. I had spent all these years as a varsity athlete. And my wife says that literally when she met me, there was, without exception, five days out of the week, I complained about missing, needing a competitive sport in my life. So I would just be like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, football's over. I need, I need something new. I need something new. And I was still training like the NFL was going to call. And like, I was still just working right. out every day, like I, like I had for all these years. And mm-hmm. I still just missed that. And then she says the day, I be, you know, within a week of becoming a prosecutor, I stopped talking about that. And so I think what being a prosecutor gave me was this opportunity to very much, you know, same as sport, you, know, you prepare and you work and you try to anticipate what your opponent's going to do and what the game's going to be like. And then you go into court, you go into theater now. And now when you're in court, whether it's a one day trial or a one month trial, it's the same idea. You're waking up every single day with this mission and you're anticipating it, you're thinking about it. You sort of love that headspace. And then you walk in and now what it comes to is now it's real time. And you got to respond, right? So this witness gave an answer that was different. This judge behaved differently. This piece of evidence came out and it was very much like sport. You're now in the moment and it's all this preparation that you did now sort of being tested. So I think it made me calmer because I was now getting that, that, that itch was now getting scratched every single day. Mm. 
And suddenly I didn't feel the need to get it outside of work. So I'd go to work every day and what my wife calls my gur, right? Like this desire to be like, I got to go. Like every man wants to fight, right? Like you want to just go and have this battle. You want, every man wants to get the summit, right? Yeah. So my wife called my gur. She's like, you got to get your gur out today. And so I would get my gur out a lot in court. And if I didn't, exercise would be where I'd get my gur. So that was point one. Um, I would say point two was I literally lived in conflict all the time. So this goes back to your earlier question and, and sort of back to you in terms of why the aversion to debating. You know, yeah. I think and I with clients all the time, I almost start, I start very often family meetings um, with clients where I'll pick something potentially controversial and say, let's discuss it. It's because you actually have to practice being comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. So we know that from sport, right? You know, you, you, you know, you, you talk to like an endurance athlete, you know, what makes an endurance athlete great isn't just their physiology. It's, and my wife's, my wife's like this. I've got friends like that. They can literally sit, you hold the hurt locker, right? They can sit in the hurt locker longer. They can get to their threshold or just below it. And it's really uncomfortable and they can stay there for three hours. You know, they've practiced being comfortable, uncomfortable. And I think we actually need to work on the same things socially. And so as a prosecutor, I just sat in discomfort all the time socially. You'd walk into court and you'd have, you know, whether it be a criminal who hates you or their lawyer who hates you or a witness who's upset at you or a judge. And you have to sit there and say, I'm prepared to deal with this social discomfort in order to do what I think is the right thing to do. And that I think when you get used to that, then conflict outside of it doesn't bother you because I've, I've sat like I've sat there in court having people yell at me and threaten to kill me. And I just have to stay very calm and stay focused. And in, and in fact, you learn over time that the calmer you stay, the more that someone gets aggressive, the more effective it is, right? You can't take the bait. You have to stay calmer. So I would say that was something that really helped. And that was that's one of the reasons being a prosecutor helped me to, to sort of be a calmer human. Yeah, you were certainly inoculated for the kind of work that you're doing now in a lot of ways, which we're going to get into in a second. Around... 2014, your dad asked you if you would help grow the family business, the stone quarry business. And so now yeah. you were sort of, you know, in a place where you got to be a prosecutor and you've got to help dad out. What was that time in your life like? It was rough. It was challenging, actually. Yeah. And you've, you've very kindly, that euphemistically, it was not this like, you know, sort of kumbaya moment of, you know, father turns to son and says, please come help me. It was much more disruptive than that. You know, mm. my dad is a really amazing human and I quite candidly described him as the world's best father. You know, he, I really couldn't have asked for more from him as a dad, but hands down might be the world's worst business partner. I mean, he's, he's not, he's not a guy people would willingly want to go into business with. And, and, and the reason for that, by the way, in a very simple, in a very simple way is, and I talk about this all the time with work, very often your greatest strength um, is your greatest weakness, right? Your greatest asset is often your greatest liability. And so for self-starters, people like my dad and people like, you know, your audience, you know, if you're the classic entrepreneur, male or female, mm -hmm. they just wake up in the morning, they live in reality distortion, right? Like the world is yep. going to turn up the way they want this world to, to go. The, yep. Those people are amazing. And they literally, when you say no to them, they don't hear no. They hear ask mm -hmm. again. They hear you're going to make it yes. This is their MO. Right. And so my dad is that to a T, you know, literally this, this story, I, I always say the story because it, it describes it best. When he arrived in Canada, he's 26, he's got, you know, 300 bucks to his name. He's just traveled by boat across the Atlantic and he arrives on the, you know, the Eastern shores of Canada on December 14th, 64, tons and tons of snow around and a guy who'd literally grown up sort of on the Mediterranean. And his mm. first thought wasn't what the hell have I done? Like, why did I leave, you know, the warm climate of Egypt for the cold climate of Canada? His first thought was, wow, Look at all that snow and ice. I wonder if I can get it on a boat, ship it back to Egypt and sell it. Right. So he was always, he's, he's the kind of guy who, no matter what he's, 
what he sees, he always views it as a great opportunity. The downside of that is those people don't plan for rainy days because in their mind, it's never going to rain on them. Things won't ever go. And succession is all about planning for the time when you're not available. And so this is the long-winded way of saying, when I went to go into the quarry, it wasn't because my dad invited me in. It was because my family and I had had a discussion and said, dad does not have a plan. His succession plan is I'm going to work until the day I die. And then you guys can sort it out. And I remember being on a bike ride with my brother and he and I talking about it. I talked to my sister about it. I talked to my mom about it, my wife, and all of us sort of agreed. We should probably, you know, we didn't care about the financial aspect of it, but we cared a lot about the family disruption aspect of it. I didn't like this idea of not having a plan in place. And I think I recognized that my dad wasn't going to come up with one on his own because that's not his wheelhouse and it's not how. So that was sort of my transition into it. So I went to him and said, Hey, I think that I should probably come and help you sort of plan for the next stage. Because if we don't do it, it'll be bad news for the family. And that's what led to it. But that, that was tough. That was, not, that was not an easy set of conversations. That was not an easy choice. And what did you do to be able to sort of like... Because I, I would suspect that this is not easy to do with your own dad. Because the dad wants to be in the role of authority. And you know, here's a son you know, creating the plan for him. Was that difficult to do? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. How much time do we have? I mean, it was... Yeah. It was... Um, it, it was, I mean, I almost blew up the family because of that dynamic, because I went in with a set of expectations. You know, I'm this, you know, whatever, smart young lawyer who's going to come in. This is what you think, right? And I'm going to mm-hmm. come in. I'm going to tell my dad how we're going to do this. And I have all these great ideas. And I had a timeline, you know, one year, two year max. I'm going to fix everything, come up with a succession plan, and we'll be off to the races. And then I learned within six months that, that was not reality. And within that six months, my relationship with my dad deteriorated. I was the most frustrated I'd ever been personally and professionally in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Things got much worse before they got better. And we had very misaligned expectations. You know, our communication was off. He viewed me. I'm still the 16-year-old Polly, right? Like I'm still the, you know, the idiot boy and he's dad. And in my mind, I'm this young man now who's had this career and I've got this wife and kids and I'm the smart guy who's going to sort of do this. You know, so it was, it was really tough. And I learned... I mean, this was one of the ways that, you know, obviously one of the key ways that led into the work that I'm doing now. I learned, I thought the hard part for me was going to go from being a lawyer to a businessman. I learned really quickly that that transition wasn't the biggest challenge. It was going into family business. Family business is very messy. And we have all these, you know, these, these dynamics, you've got 30 or 40 years worth of family history, sometimes longer, and you're going and you're trying to navigate these waters. So it, it was not easy. And I, you know, I came very, very close to quitting a number of times. We had some big fights, you know, again, things got much worse before they got better. All right, let's talk. You've been alluding to the kind of work that you're, we've been alluding to the kind of work that you're doing uh, now. And the name of your company is Your Family Enterprise Advisors. Can you walk me through what that is? Yeah. And so Your Family Enterprise Advisors is actually a company um, that Ruth Steverlink, who's a colleague of mine, she founded that company. Ruth's a former lawyer who got into this work. She's, she's phenomenal at it. She's, she's amazing. I've learned, I've learned so much from her and she's been a big help for me in terms of getting into this work. It's, it's actually hard to describe the work. I would say ultimately what I now do for a living is help, you know, families navigate the difficult conversations and decisions they have at the intersection of their family and their wealth. So if you think about sort of the, the wealth transition that occurs in the world, right? So wealth transition can occur in a number of different ways. You know, the most obvious is you set up your inheritance. But wealth transition occurs in terms of family businesses. And it doesn't just occur when you pass away. Wealth transition or family business transition occurs during our lifetime, right? You're bringing your kid into, the, into work with you. 
right? You've no doubt thought in your mind, huh, I wonder if one of my two kids will take over after me, right? Like every, it's very, very primal. It's very natural to think about your kids, think about the future. For those of us who are passionate about our work, you're excited about your work and you love what you do and you hope that your daughters are going to end up being passionate about their work, right? There's an ego aspect to it, right? We think we've created a legacy and we want to see this legacy continue. I mean, this is all very natural. I think it's, you know, I think it's rooted in, in, in our biology. And then we add this resource into it, you know, such as the, the financial aspect of it. And yet the conversations that people should have first are very often the conversations we have last, right? So we start planning all these different ideas in our head. We start thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And we actually haven't had the difficult conversations with people to understand where everybody else is at. And so what ends up happening is people start making all these plans without actually having the discussion. And if you look at like sort of the history of business transition and wealth transition, the reason that things don't transition well from sort of a gen one to a gen two or gen two to gen three, you know, very rarely, like less than 15% of the time is due to something that had to do with estate planning or tax planning or financials. We call that the quantitative side of things. So the quantitative side of things, all the professional advisors people have, you know, the vast majority of the time that things get screwed up in any form of, of, of business transition is due to the qualitative side of things. It's the relational aspect of it. And so the work that I do, and again, I, you know, I came by it honestly, because I learned, you know, firsthand with the difficulties of my own family, the work that I do is I now actually help quarterback that process. So, you know, I've got this background in law, background in psychology, background in business, but I don't, I, I sort of wear all those hats, but none of those hats. I don't come in and do any of the technical work. I don't come in and tell people what to do. What I help people do is actually help navigate that decision because you need someone who can help sit at the center, sit at the hub with all these different spokes and help navigate those really difficult decisions and difficult conversations. Well, without, without sharing, you know, obviously anything personal, can you give me an example of maybe some recent type conversations that you've had? Because I want to make sure that I'm tracking with what it is that you're doing exactly. Like, what are what are the conversations like that you're quarterbacking? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So obviously, I'll keep I'll keep everything anonymous. You know, but th th this would be a recent one. Actually, this this would be a few years old. So you'll appreciate this because the, the family was, it was a good example of sort of communication. A family heard me speak one time and like a, a business event and asked me to come and help them with their family. So I, I interviewed them and, and learned a little bit. It was, you know, you know, dad starts the business, runs it. Now dad's a bit older. Dad has two kids working in the business. Kids get along well and dad has to pick dad's successor. So dad makes this decision and picks sort of kid one as the successor. Now, nobody disagreed with the decision. No one disagreed that, you know, the, the, the kid who was picked, who's an adult, by the way, now, right? I say kid, but a child, like sort of the next gen. But the problem was there was this massive ripple effect from that decision. And that ripple effect manifested in um, business disruption and significant family disruption. And so they just knew there was a challenge. They didn't know what it was. And so they, you know, they met with me and they just knew they needed help, but they didn't really know what it was. And so when the family interviewed me, you know, I, you know, I got shortlisted. I ended up sitting in their, in their living room and the dad turns to me and says, okay, you know, we've shortlisted you. You're on this list of two people or whatever. You know, if we hire you, how long will this take? And I knew what the right answer was to get hired. The right answer was, you know, in three months on the Politia program, you'll have, you know, you'll have a six pack abs and your floors will be shinier and your family's going to, you know, like you'll be singing in the, in the hills of Switzerland. Like I, knew that the, I knew that was the answer they wanted to hear to get hired, but I knew it wasn't the truth. Right. And so instead I said, well, before I answer your question, you have to answer a question. I said, what is this? He said, what? I said, you said, how long will this take? I said, define this. <laughs> He's like, okay. So he gave his version of this. And I said, stop there for a minute, dad. And I went around the room and I said, do you agree with dad's version of this? 
And, you know, to a T, everyone shook their head. No one agreed with dad's version of this. And I says, well, now, you know, I'm not going to tell you how long this will take because we have to define this. We have to know what this is, right? First. Right. And yep. I knew in the moment I'd get hired or fired, right? And fortunately, I got hired and I've worked with that family now for a number of years. So, so to back to your question, what we did was I actually just began by trying to identify what everybody saw as the issue. And everybody in the room, just like, you know, I use this example, this was very similar in law. You know, if you're prosecuting a case that occurred at a baseball game, 10 different people will view the same game in 10 different ways. So the yeah. same is true in family dynamics, right? If I interviewed you and your wife and your kids, and I say, what are the biggest challenges facing your family? You might describe the same thing, but you describe it very differently. It's human nature to do that. And so I spent a bit of time trying to identify it. And ultimately in that particular case, what it came down to is one of these core principles of, of our business, which is at the end of the day, what matters most in a family dynamic and in a family business is the process over the content. So the content is the what, what are we discussing? And everyone focuses on that. You know, who are we picking as the leader? How much money do we pay our kids? How much money do I leave my kids? When do I, and I will say like, we'll get to those answers, but we have to first work on the process. And the process is, can we have a forum in which we can have what I call, you know, sort of the big three things. You want to have discussions that are honest, cohesive, and productive. So I always try to, because if we're dishonest, we hurt ourselves down the road, right? And so, you know, when you get married to somebody, if you don't want kids and they do, you have to be honest. Because if you're dishonest just to get someone to marry you, when the time comes to make a decision about starting a family, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have been a pyrrhic victory, right? You have to be cohesive though, because if we're too honest without thinking about being cohesive, then we blow things up. And then we also have to be productive. So all that to say, in that particular family, we actually had to go and have the difficult conversation about the decision that dad had made three years earlier to pick one kid over the other. Mm. Because that decision had been done. And in fairness, you know, no one had bad intentions, but that decision had been done in a quite suboptimal fashion. Meaning dad did it in a classic entrepreneurial fashion. Shoot from the hip, go with my gut, instinct, right? And what ended up happening was the kid who wasn't picked wasn't upset with the outcome, but was very hurt by the process right? Because the process, it didn't include a number of people. There was no transparency around it. No one understood why, right? And, and I can, I, you can't fault anyone in the system for it. These are natural human things. So it took a while to sort of unpack that and figure that out. And then it's like, now that we have that, and we've committed to making sure that going forward, we're going to have more of an inclusive discussion. We're going to you know sort of talk about these things. Now it's like, what are the challenges we're facing today? And that we anticipate to face tomorrow and go forward with that. So are these families mostly high net worth individual families or is it just any family that you work with? No, I would say most of them are high net worth families. Yeah. Okay. And most of them are in the situation of either um, having an operating business still. So like a lot of ultra wealthy families have got an operating business or several, and then they have a lot of wealth that sits outside in other areas or their families who have now sold the, the operating business, right? The sort of the mothership that built the enterprise or built the wealth. And now they're just trying to make difficult decisions about what to do with this wealth. And I always frame that as, you know, um, working with a client right now. So just, you know, you, you sort of examples of current mandates, another client who's about to sell a business, it's going to be sold for a significant amount of money. And to their credit, they want to say, what are we going to do as a family with this money? Because it's very different, as you know, when you, you spend 30 years building a business, it's now worth 150 million bucks. You don't walk to the grocery store and think I've got 150 million bucks to spend, right? Because it's sitting in brick and mortar or in shares somewhere, right? It's very different going to you know, liquidate the asset. And now it's, it's a lot psychologically different to think we've now got $100 million to spend or a billion dollars to spend, whatever the case may be. 
So that particular family, to their credit, they are preemptively saying, I want to figure out what I'm going to do with this. And we want to make sure that we have good family governance around how we make decisions. And to their credit, they recognize, you know, I think the people that call have already come to an important realization, which is your wealth can hurt your family if you don't make good decisions about it and if you're not proactive. You know, so that, that's a typical mandate. I, always, I often say, you know, I get calls at one of three times. You know, the cliff is, is sort of the edge when you're going to fall off. And I get calls from people who are at the edge of the cliff. So there's some event that is on the horizon. And in the event might be a good thing, like we're selling a business and we're going to do you know, cash out. An event might be bad news, like we got a diagnosis, you know, someone's ill and we got to make a decision. An event might be, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire soon and I want to bring one of my kids in. The second time I get a call is someone who's 10 years back from the cliff. So they're, they know that an event's coming and they think, you know, I'm 64 now. I've got this huge enterprise. I've got, you know, businesses all over North America. I don't know what to do about it. I've just had my shoulder to the plow for 40 years working and I got to make a decision. I'm going to call Paul to help figure out the family dynamic side of things. And then the third type of phone call I get is someone who's gone over the edge of the cliff. So the shit has hit the fan and the family has blown up and they're in a really tough spot. And as they start to look back, they realize, you know, we had this inheritance event and then it sort of, you know, quote unquote, ruined the kids or ruined the family, or we gave money to the kids. We're disappointed with what happened. Right. Or I handed the business over to my three kids to run it. And now they're fighting nonstop. So those are the three types of calls I get. And, um, Generally, the mandates are, you know, we want help managing what I would say is the family dynamic or the, the qualitative side of our wealth decisions. That, that, and that's what the work involves. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. When you look back now at people who have this level of wealth, what are you noticing that perhaps you want to, uh, that may, that's maybe even a cautionary tell for your children <clears throat> that you want to make sure that they don't wind up this way where they just get a bunch of money. They don't know what they're doing. What are the mistakes that come that are commonly happening? Yeah. So I think, I think in fairness to all the families that I work with, I'm very selective about the families that I work with. So I, I am sometimes saying no to families you know, I, I do it diplomatically and politely. And, and the reason for that is I'm only interested in people who approach it with the right attitude. So there's definitely a self-selection. There's, there's two, you know, there's a self-selection of the families who are picking up and calling me, picking up the phone and calling me, have either heard me speak or, you know, the, the vast majority of my work is, is sort of word of mouth. So they've talked to another family who said, you got to talk to Paul. He helped us out. You know, we had conversations with Paul. We never thought possible and they went better than we ever sort of imagined. And, and I don't, I say that, you know, immodestly, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity and they do the work. I'm just helping to guide it along. You know, it comes back along in a lot of ways to that experience as a prosecutor of being unafraid to ask questions and unafraid of seeing conflict and being able to do so calmly and fairly, right? And then obviously my own particular background in terms of just dealing with these issues myself. So I've got a high level of empathy to the mixed emotions we have in families, right? This idea of like, I love my family, but man, my family's driving me nuts and I want to mm -hmm. do the right thing, but holy crap, they're making it near impossible to do. But, but back to your question in terms of the lessons learned, I would say there's a self-selection with the people who are calling me are trying to do things right, number one. And in fairness to them, they have been trying to do things right for a long time. So the people who are calling me are not very often the people who have gone through the horror stories that we read about because those people wouldn't have called or still aren't making the call. 
right? Got it. Yeah. I know this like yeah. a Freakonomics rule. So you remember that book, Freakonomics? Yeah. There was a great chapter in there about becoming a young kid. And I can't remember which one of the books it was in, but it was, you know, the idea was if you find out you're going to be a parent and you go out and buy 10 parenting books, it actually doesn't matter if you read them or not. The fact that you were the type of person who said, I'm going to, I want to be a good parent. So I'll go buy the books tells us right away that you're probably going to be a decent parent, which is me, by the way, no one's bought and read less books than, than me. So, you know, it's my claim to fame. I'm still a good parent. Right. <laughs> and so I think the people who are calling me, so, so that's sort of point one in terms of fairness to them, but in terms of the, in terms of some of the lessons that I've learned, yeah, I would say, I would say the big one comes down to this. You really want to not rob your kids of the opportunity for them to prove themselves. Mm. I think that's one of the big challenges. Right. So I, I say this to clients all the time. They're hiring me and they say, you know, we want to make sure that we've we're giving our kids all this wealth. And I say, well, tell me your story. You know, how did you, how did you sort of acquire this? And it's like, ah, oh, you know, I began doing this and, and I was working for somebody and then I saw a cool opportunity and I was like, oh man, I got to go do this. And they have all these, you, you've talked to entrepreneurs, right? They're, they're yeah. unbelievable. And they have all these amazing stories of, you know, and I always break it down into sort of three categories. Like, there are people who never see an opportunity. There are people, and I learned this from my good friend, Doug Smith, who, who gave me this speech you know, 20 years ago. It's like people who never see the opportunities, people who see them, but sort of don't act on them. And then people who are out making them, right? And entrepreneurs always fall into that third category. And when you listen to them and you describe, and they describe sort of these stories of the past 40 years, you realize so much of their identity and so much of their confidence and so much of who they are was born out of these adversarial situations that they you know, overcame. And so I often say to them, do you, how, how do you feel looking back upon your life, having these experiences? And it's always, it's always positive. And I say, do you want to rob your kid of that? And that sort of, you know, makes them step back a little because they realize, oh yeah, I don't want to rob my kid of that. And so I try to challenge people to say, you've got to make decisions that are tougher, but in the best interest of your kids and money again, money is like fire, right? This is a great line from Customato, you know, you know, the, the Mike Tyson's boxing trainer about fear, right? Fear is fire to a fighter. It can be a great asset or it can be a liability, right? Fire can cook your food or fire can kill you. And so I say money is the exact same way. Money can be a total amazing value add to your family and for generations to come. And money can be something that can just ruin your current family and ruin families for generations to come. So I always invite clients to say, think about that. And for me personally, as a guy who's raising my own family, yeah, I'm very mindful of the fact that you want to teach your kids independence and autonomy. You want to give them the right amount of support, but not so much support that they don't develop their own independence. And then you want to keep, I would say the next big thing that I've learned is you really want to keep the conversations around money and wealth as positive and more about the principles governing it than the specifics of that particular decision. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, when you develop wealth, the amounts will change over time. Right. So you don't say something like, I never spend more than $5 on this. It's like you, $5 is a lot of money to you today, but you know, 20 years from now, that number might be 5,000. Right. So it's not so much with the value, it's that value relative to your overall principles. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Do you miss being a lawyer? Yeah. I mean, technically I'm still a lawyer. I'm still a licensed lawyer. I just don't, I just don't practice it anymore. Yeah. The only thing that I miss, I'm, you know, I miss going to court. That was really fun. You know, I miss, I miss, I miss going to court, but I don't miss, I don't miss everything else. Like the work that I'm doing now is the work. I mean, my wife says all the time, you know, 98% of the conversations I have during the course of a week, I would have had anyway. Like, don't, don't tell my clients wink, wink, but like most of the work that I do, I do for free. Like I actually really love what I'm doing. I love the family meetings. I love meeting with people. I love navigating these like seven dimensional problems where you're literally trying to help someone navigate through something. And you're thinking about the financial aspect, the business aspect, the personal aspect, the psychological aspect, the, you know, the conflict management, you're trying to play chess 12 moves ahead. Like 
I could sit in that space all day long and I'd be pretty happy. So I love that. I think the thing that I miss, and we go back, we, you sort of laughed at it earlier. Uh, I don't get the grr in, in this job. Like there's no, there's no fight. I'm always sort of peacemaking. And so I'm dealing with conflict, but I'm the guy who comes in and calmly does it. So I check those boxes off now in other ways where, you know, sports continue to be a great outlet for me. But that's the, that's the thing I miss about practicing law is just the ability to walk into court and sort of have a yeah. field day examining somebody. No, I get it. I, I get it. What's your thoughts on the uh, television show Succession? Oh man, I get asked that every every week almost someone asks me about that. And my answer is always yeah. I've not watched it. I've deliberately chosen to not watch it. Yeah. And I'm I'm holding I'm holding off for a while. Ask me, ask me in a year, maybe I'll make I, I mean, I think I know it's very toxic. I know the characters are pretty unlikable. I spend so much of my my headspace in that zone anyway. I'm not sure the value that it would add. I but I've heard I've heard it's entertaining as heck. But yeah, so I've not I've by design I have not watched it. So no, it, no literally problem. every everything that you're describing, I'm I'm literally walking through all the episodes that I've watched. That that's why everybody asks you about it. But I I get it. it makes sense to me. I want to and, talk and about there's a, and, there's a, and there's just just on that point. There's a reason for that. So one of the things that I liked about being a trial lawyer was, mm -hmm. and this is a good framework I think for for folks in business and just in life in general. So in in, in strength. This is sort of a key principle of strength training, which is, you know, exercises that have a strong carryover, right? So if you do a squat that has a strong carryover as opposed to a leg extension, which is more specific to that particular movement. So I like to think about that concept in life. What activities am I doing with my time that has strong carryover? So when I was a trial lawyer, I used to, you know, I love this. Everything I did in life was valuable as a trial lawyer because I knew that it would have strong carryover into some situation. So literally getting on a bus going into a coffee shop, whatever it is that you're doing, raising your kids, all these things that we sort of just do every day was going to teach me, if I'm paying attention and looking for it, would teach me a lesson that would help me in court one day. Because I'd be interacting with somebody about a life situation and I could draw upon that. I always saw those are, those are arrows I'm putting in my quiver, right? I feel the same way about this work. Everything, and, and the reason for that is the courtroom and the reason there's so many courtroom dramas is because it's basically just life unfolding, right? You've got court courtside seats, just sort of the unfolding of life. That's what a courtroom is. And family business and family dynamics as it relates to wealth is the exact same thing. Everybody comes from a family. And so whether you're arguing about, you know, who's going to take over after dad or how much am I leaving in my will, or how do I have this conversation with my kid to say, I want to leave you money, but you're married to so-and-so and I'm not really, I don't really trust so-and-so. So how do I approach my 35-year-old kid to say, I'd like to take you. I'd like to have you set up, sign up a marriage contract now before I put you in my will. Right? That's that's a tough conversation to have. But everyone can relate to these situations, whether you have, you know, that financial situation or not. We can all relate to it. Are you at a point now where you can walk into a room and go like, "Oh, I know what the problem is here. The problem is that kid. The problem is that woman. This thing." And I I, I have to get them to be able to see this, but I'm pretty clear on what's going on. So by design, no. I, I literally have written on my desk, like on a, on a sticky on my desk, start with listening. Because I, and I literally, it's just a huge principle of mine to always walk into a situation with a clean slate and always begin with curiosity. And I don't even let myself be called a consultant. You know, people are like, oh, you're a consultant. I'm like, no, because a consultant, I'm not trying to insult consultants, but the, the, you know, the, the traditional consulting model is, you know, I, Rob comes in, we do our discovery. And then what we do is we give you an amazing PowerPoint presentation or a binder. And we tell you that, as my client calls it, the 10 commandments, here's the things you need to do. I, mm -hmm. by design, do not do that. And the reason I don't do that is when it comes to family dynamics, they're way too nuanced, way too sticky, way too messy. You cannot just give someone a binder on how to live their life. Humans don't operate that way. 
Humans operate where you roll up your sleeves, you get beside someone in the trenches of life, and you help them along the way. And you try your best to give people guiding principles, help reveal some truth, and then nudge them along the way as they deal with these situations. And always trying to get, you know, a big, big part of the work that I do is I'm not the hero of that story. In the consulting model, I'm the hero, right? I'm the guy who comes in and tells everyone about themselves and tells them what to do. I don't, I don't take that model by design. I take a very different approach, which is I'm in there to ask tough questions to help get the truth out, to help take this very, very complex situation and distill it to a couple of key principles, put the pieces on the board and say, here are some ways that you can help go forward, but they're only going to work if you buy into it. So you guys tell me your solutions and I'll help you get there. So it's Mm -hmm. very, very different than walking in and telling people, here's what it is. So, so again, by design, I don't go in thinking, you know, I don't go into the preconceived notions. I go in with a high level of confidence in my process and my ability to ask questions and get answers out of people. And I go in there with a high level of confidence in the experience that I have and all the different examples that I bring to the table and all the different tools that I bring to the table. And I often say, I used that example earlier about arrows in the quiver. I often think, you know, I've got a hundred arrows in the quiver. I'm only going to need three of them. I just don't know which three it's going to be, right? So I walk into the room thinking, I'm going to have a clean slate and just try to read things, figure it out. And then, okay, I need this arrow for this person. I need this arrow for this person. Okay, for this family meeting, here's the approach of the technical work here. And I think that clean slate approach, A, hopefully makes me better at you know the work that I do. And B, keeps it interesting. You know, you walk in every day and every day is this new situation to learn and unpack. Do you ever get frustrated that somebody's not listening to you and you're not able to make your point? I, if I do, I think I probably mitigate it really quickly. I think, you know, I have, I have a lot of patience. I, I think I, I don't have patience. I'm, I'm, I'm hyper impatient in a ton of areas of my life. Uh, so, so don't let me describe myself unfairly as Job over here. But, but I think when it comes into my work, I recognize that there's a readiness factor that is very different for different people. And so if you hired me to come work with your family, the person who reached out to me usually is like the most ready. They've been thinking about these issues for, right? Like they've been being like for five years, they've been sort of like listening to something and they're like, oh, we got to get this guy in the room. But there is somebody else in that system who is five years behind you. That's, and so, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. It, it, somebody- it's that one. It's the, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe the ex-wife, it's the son, it's the somebody that's like, you know, I, I didn't call this guy in and I don't want to be here. And is that part of it frustrating for you? Because I get the person who hired you. But yeah. you, when you're dealing with a family, you know, you've got people three, four late. That's right. No, 100%. So, so look, I mean, if it were easy, everyone would do it, right? That's the rule. And so the reality is managing pace is hands down one of the toughest parts of my job. So I have to try to, you know, assess a situation, figure out what the family dynamics are, figure out who the players are. And then I have to manage pace, which is tough. And what I have to do is I have to go fast enough that the person is at the front of the train, like the guy who hired me or whatever, or the guy who you know initiated this, isn't, we're not going so slow that they get disengaged and frustrated, but I also can't go so fast that I leave the person at the back sort of, you know, falling off the back of the train. And so how I navigate that, you know, I'm dealing with it right now with a client, you know, the person who initiated this sort of, you know, by the second call had given me their full vision for the future, everything they wanted, their assessment of the issues. Another person in the equation, you know, I maybe 10 calls just to get them to start to open up to the spot where they can be like, oh yeah, I'm making decisions that have a massive impact and a massive ripple effect on, you know, people for generations. And so in fairness, I just have to manage that. And you do that, you know, it's not, if you're aware of it and you're honest about it and you're diligent, people respond. So I just, you coach people through that, right? You take people aside and you say, look, I know you're chomping at the bit and I know you wanted a decision on this yesterday. 
but just work with me. You got to trust me. So a big part of the work is based on trust, right? They have to trust that you're actually going to overall get them somewhere. You know, it's interesting. I was at a party the other night in, in, in Florence and this town is an interesting town because it's filled with Ferragamo's, Gucci's, you know what I mean? And it, right. I can only imagine what it would be like with generations that go on three, four, 500 years of, you know, wineries and clothing. and like these, these, these deep webs of family business. And I, like, I, I'm just, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and navigating that. That's like being inserted into that has got to yeah. be so difficult. Yeah. I mean, this is maybe something that <laughs> I don't know if this is good or bad. I, I obviously view it as good or I wouldn't do it. I never, ever, ever ask my clients about their wealth. I, I literally, I don't know the net worth of any of my clients. Again, you know, mm. every single one of these ultra wealthy families has a lineup of people out their door who are asking about their wealth. Right. Mm. And that's mm. a business model. I don't. I say to my families all the time, I don't care if your net worth is 10 billion, 2 billion, 2 million, it doesn't matter to me. And the reason for that, I mean, it's a couple fold, but number one, it's relative. So if you're a family that's got your mom and pa shop and miraculously this thing after 50 years is worth, you've got a $20 million enterprise, that is all the tea in China for you, right? Like that is everything. That is massive. That is, that is a huge amount of money. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter that, you know, the guy across the street has a net worth of two billion dollars or the you know the family across the street has that. I mean, that's relative to them. Mm. And so I say, look, I'm interested in the family dynamics. I'm interested in helping you guys figure out what you want to do and navigate these difficult conversations. You know, take the conversations that you know you need to have. And every one of us has that list, right? We all have the conversations we know we need to have. And very often the conversation we know we need to have is the one we have last, right? Mm. Mm. And I will say that I want to work with families who want to deal with that and want to dive into that space and are looking for, you know, the, the help to do that. And so the only time I ask about money is when it comes to making like a really important decision that will have some ramifications. So for example, I'll say to clients, I don't need to know anything about your net worth. The only time I will care about it is when it comes to you giving money to your kids or setting aside money for your kids. Because the conversation is very different if you're leaving your kid $10,000 versus $10 million, right? Sure. And so I need yeah. that. So if we're having a conversation about, hey, I want to disclose to my kid what's in the trust. They don't even know that the trust exists. Our kids don't even know that we're worth uh, a ton of money. We've lived a, you know, a relatively modest life. Can you help us navigate that? conversation? Absolutely. Sure. And I don't care about the money until it comes to the time when we're actually going to disclose it to the kid. Now I need to know. Right. And same thing when it comes to, you know, if I get into the details on what's our insurance policy, do I properly cover it? Have we, you know, talked enough about making sure there's enough money set aside for four generations? Like that's the only time I actually care about the money. The rest of the time I'm there to really understand the people and help them get to where they want to go. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit now. I want to go into, as we sort of wrap here, I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. You've discussed work-life balance in the past and work-life balance is not so easy for anybody. But when I, when I think about your situation where you went from being 30 years old, married to 35 years old, married with four children, how did you navigate all of the challenges of work-life balance of you know being a super dad, a husband, a son, a brother, you know, a sister, a friend, all of those things are not easy. Can you sort of like, you know, taking care of your sister, you know what I mean? Walk me through how you use principles, I think you've said, to mitigate some of those downsides. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the journey was a fast one. It was actually on my 30th birthday. I was not even married. I was dating, you know, I was dating my now wife, but I wasn't even married. And by the time I was 35, I was married with four kids. And then, as you know, a couple of years later, we added uh, what we call our victory lap baby. So now we've got five kids and we're stopping at, we're stopping at five. We've now got a German shepherd, which is now scratched the itch for the six. So there you go. So that's it. The, the kids all wanted a, another sibling and we said, no, we got them a dog. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think you sort of, you, you, you segued there. I, th- I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I spent a lot of time asking myself, what do I want this thing to look like down the road? And then just tried to look for some key governing principles. And then a big part of it was having to adapt what my, what my particular standards were and adjust them to my new, my new surroundings. So one of the frameworks that I use with clients all the time, and I wish I could take credit for this. I learned it from my father-in-law. He said, you know, life is much more sailboat than motorboat. And so I always think about this sailboat metaphor. You know, when you're sailing, you have to actually perpetually watch the wind and the waves, and then you have to adjust accordingly, right? So I think that's just a really good framework for life. And so for me, you know, on the workout front, I was used to being a varsity athlete who, you know, went to the gym every day for a couple of hours. That was my life. And then suddenly, you know, as a father of four, who's working as a criminal prosecutor and trying to do a couple other things in my spare time, I realized I don't have that time anymore. And I was really, really keen on this big picture, which was, I'm never going to take my foot off the gas. So I just think Mm. that was rule number one. I saw all these people ahead of me who, and we've all, we've all seen this, right? It's the dad who used to play hockey three times a week and, you know, go to the gym twice a week. And then he gets a couple of kids and he sort of says, well, I'll just take tonight off and I'm busy. And I, and then, you know, 10 years have passed and this guy's not active anymore. He's not doing anything anymore. And he's wondering what the hell happened to the past 10 years. And I just made a decision really early on. I will not take my foot off the gas. And look, that decision, it was easy for me to make because it was natural. But the consequences of that were significant. I've had to have a lot of conversations with my wife about it, you know, because it sounds like it's selfish. And in many respects, it is. But for me, it was, I know myself. And I know that if I, if I don't get to pursue the things I've always pursued, I'm just not going to be the same guy. Like I told my wife, like, the guy that you married won't be the guy that you're married to. If I can't exercise consistently, if I can't passionately pursue work. So, you know, during those years as a prosecutor, I could have very easily said, give me a lighter load at work. Give me easy. I I just was like, nope, pedal to the metal. So what you have to do then is set up systems in place to be able to do it. So gym in the basement was number one, you know, just put a gym in the house. Obviously this is, you know, going back 12 years, this was obviously pre COVID, but it was like gym in the house. I put pull-up bars in my office at work. I found ways to figure out exercise into my day, no matter what. So if I was, you know, if I was running to work or if I was going to work, I'd run to work. I'd find a park and I'd go sprint hills. I bought a weight vest. I bought dumbbells, I, like whatever it was. I bought a chariot to pull my kids around. You know, I started getting up early. I wasn't an, I wasn't a morning guy growing up. I became a morning guy. You just, you have to figure that out. And then what you have to do is I asked myself a lot. I mean, you're kind to say super dad, I'm far from it. But one thing I've, I've tried to do is make sure that I have my priorities straight. So really early on into fatherhood, I started journaling and asking myself, what kind of dad and husband do I want to be? And I literally just wrote it out. And I, you know, I told myself like, this is how I want to be described as a husband. And this is how I want to be described as a father. And then I asked myself, what are my life goals as it relates to this? So I, you know, for me, I call it the big, you know, the big three Fs, right? So family, fitness, and finance. And I just sat down and I just said, what are my sort of one-year goals, my five-year goals, and then my lifetime goals. And so for, you know, for fatherhood, I, I sat down and I was like, I, what do I want as a dad? And I was like, I want to be a positive influence on my children. Right? I want to set a good example. I want to be patient. I want to be wise. You know, there's all these, I'm going to cry when I think about it, but you, you try to sit down and just ask yourselves, like, who am I going to be as a dad? And then I asked myself, what do I want? And I realized that what I wanted more than anything, and what I still want more than anything is to make sure that I have an ongoing relationship with my children for their whole lives. 
right? I want a really healthy. And I was like, I realized that that doesn't start when your daughter is 15. You know, when your daughter is 15 and she's, you know, dating the guy you don't want her to date, you don't then say, Hey, I'm your dad. I'm going to come into your life and talk to you. It's like, no. So I just started taking my daughters out for, you know, dad and daughter dates when, you know, before they could talk, we're going for a hike, we're going to get a coffee, whatever the case may be just to establish that. Um, then when I had sons, same thing there. So I was just like, I've got to make sure that I'm pouring into these relationships now. What people don't realize when they think about raising a family is it's very front loaded. <laughs> Everything in life that's important to you is front loaded. So if you think about finance, finance is front loaded, right? You had asked earlier about lessons I've learned from some of these families that I work with. A big part of it is they've been making very good decisions for 40 plus years. Someone doesn't become a billionaire overnight. Right. When you talk to so and so who's done it, it's like, what did you do? It's like they were 25, they saw an opportunity, they, you know, they went after it, they put in the work, they did it. You know what I mean? They made a mm-hmm. bunch of good decisions financially. They had some mistakes too, but they made a lot of good decisions and they took their strengths and they repeated their strengths over and over again, like water up against a boulder, right? They did that for four years. I think relationships are the same way. So I thought a lot about that as a dad. I thought a lot about that as a husband. And then I just, and I obviously I thought a lot about that as an athlete and just said, I just have to be consistent. And so my rule is when it comes to good things, something is always better than nothing. So if you want to put, you know, a thousand bucks in your bank account for savings, but all you have is a hundred, don't say, well, I'll wait till I get a thousand, put the hundred bucks in, right? A hundred bucks done every so-and-so over a lifetime will be significant. When it comes to exercise, you know, I've never said, well, I don't have two hours today. It's like, I don't care. What do I got? What do you got? Two minutes? Great. Like do push-ups to failure for two minutes. What do you, you know what I mean? You got 10 minutes? Great. Go grab a tire. Go like I keep chain, I mean, you're gonna laugh, but I keep chains in my truck. I drive a pick, I keep chains in my truck. Why? I can work out anywhere. If I'm out on the road and I'm, you know, I'm busy or whatever, I can literally pull into a parking lot, throw the chains on, and I can do truck pulls and truck pushes. You do five to 10 minutes of those, you're bagged. Right. So you can always find a way to get this stuff in. And then I try to do the same thing with my kids. It's like never, you know, my my friend Jaron has this line, never miss an opportunity for a small victory. So when you're with your kids, just set your priorities and say, I want to connect with my kids on a daily level. And that might be, you know, 10 minutes or it might be two minutes or it might be four hours. You don't know, but don't miss out on the opportunity. Don't say, well, I'll connect with my kids in two weeks when my work schedule clears up. My rule is, you know, hang out in the morning, sit down with them, ask them about their world and connect with them. Just establish that consistent rapport with your children throughout. So those were the things that I tried to do when I went into this very busy period of having, you know, four kids in four years. Are you very pragmatic in how you separate your time? In other words, do you, you know, is there a process where you, you know, wake up early in the morning and you say like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to spend this time with the kids and this time with the wife, I'm going to work block for this time. Are you, are you, regimented in that way? Probably not as much as people think. I'm regimented that way in terms of how I organize my day and my process in terms of what I think about. So yeah, I definitely get up early and I really, really, really value actually time by myself. So I need time on my own every morning to function. You know, and there's a whole long story behind that, which maybe we'll, we'll talk about some other, but I had a wicked concussion right around that same time that I was actually leaving law and going into family business. And post-concussion, I could barely function in life. And I actually had to start my day off doing nothing just to be able to get through the day. And I needed to just actually collect my thoughts, map out my day. I just, I couldn't think at a high level post-concussion. And again, it's a whole long story, which, you know, maybe we'll pick up some other time. But ultimately what I, what I learned through that was if I could take that model of spending time in my own mind every single day in deep thought, once I get healthy and recover from the concussion, if I take that and apply it to life, I think I can optimize my productivity. And so that's exactly what happened. And so now I, I often say the most productive hour of my day is the hour in which the world thinks I'm doing nothing, which is I'm sitting in a chair, <laughs> staring out the window at a tree, usually with nothing more than a notebook and a pencil. 
And sometimes I'm writing a lot and sometimes I'm writing nothing. Sometimes I'm just reading things I've read before. But the point is that is my time to take all the different moving pieces of the universe and put them sort of on the board. And so that's something that I probably do five to six days out of the week. And sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's 10 minutes, but I, I don't miss it. I really need that. Does that process look like you sitting in your office, door closed, looking out the window with a notebook and journaling, meditating? Or what's that, what's that look like more granularly? Yeah, it's all of the above. So I definitely have a meditation component to it and that's evolved over the years. So, you know, I use Sam Harris's waking up app a lot, but very often, you know, no, no offense to Sam. I don't want to hear Sam's voice first thing in the morning. I want to hear something else. So sometimes it's just sitting there with nothing in the background. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's you know, just relaxing music there. And again, I have a little bit of, I have a journal. So I have, you know, those goals that I talked about, you know, in terms of who I want to be. So yeah. I write my goals out, you know, I want to do this many, you know, I want to make this much money. And I, you know, I, I get prescriptive with my goals, but less so as I've gotten older, most of my goals in my life are thematic, meaning be a patient, wise and noble father. Like that's a thematic goal as opposed to a prescriptive mm. goal. So I never write a goal and say, spend 10 minutes with my kids today. I don't, I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't matter whether it's 10 minutes or 10 hours. The goal is thematic. It's principle-based right? Be available for my children, connect with, I write down every single day, cherish my wife and connect with my kids. And so that's just a theme that I think about, you know, my exercise goal, I've got a bunch of prescriptive exercise goals, right? Like I have a set of, you know, annually, I want to do X amount of pull-ups. I want to do X amount of push-ups. You know, that's basically all I do sort of on that front. I want to make sure that I move a heavy thing, you know, twice a week, right? So whether it's flip a tire or a push a sled, I do that. So I have prescriptive goals, but overall the goal is, you know, improve mobility, improve fitness, improve strength, have the fitness freedom to go and do the things that I want to do for as long as I want to do them. Right. And same thing, you know, connect with my wife, be patient, cherish my wife, you know? So, so I read over those almost every morning. I sort of, you know, tally it, just make sure I do that. I've written a note to myself, which sounds, you know, maybe sort of silly, but it's, here's who I want to be. And it's much more about who I want to be than what I want to be. So, you know, who do I want to be? I want to be someone who honors and respects his parents. I want to be someone who's available for his friends when they need him. I want to be somebody, you know, and I, I sort of, I write that out. I've written that out and I read that over. So that is part of the morning routine. And then literally sitting there staring out the window at the beautiful trees in, in, our, in our yard. And at that time, I'm literally just thinking about all the, you know, sometimes it might be minute. I might be planning a mountain biking ride in my head, or I might be working on this like massive work problem, or I might just be thinking about who do I want to be when I'm 80. That's great. So, you, so you'll have all those who I want to be written out and you'll connect to them to make sure that you're in alignment with where you need to be and, and certainly reminding yourself of what's important to you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've got a pen there too, because they change. I might have an idea and I might think I actually want to work on this a little more. I want to work on this. So it's just, a, it's just, it's, it's sort of like a reminder to me as to who I want to be, you know, again, much more so than what I want to be. Okay. What do people often get wrong about you? It probably sounds somewhat paradoxical having just said what I said, but I, I think people assume that I'm more intense than I am. I, I am very intense and I, you know, by my own admission, somewhat insane, but I, I think I'm probably a lot more chilled out than people realize. So I totally have a chilled outside. I love, I, I'm, I'm happy chilling out. And I think most people think that I never relax. I think most people think that I'm probably more organized. Like, you know, I'm, I'm late often to things, you know, it's the, you know, my, my wife can't stand it. People are surprised by it. And I think the reason that I am late to things is because I actually just love being in the moment. So I actually, you know, my kids, whenever I say I got to go get a coffee, they're like, oh, 
oh, dad's going to go get a coffee because I walk into a coffee shop and it's literally like time has stopped. I bump into, Rob, how are you doing? What's going on? Oh my God, how's life in Italy? What's going on? You're lost. And then literally three hours later, I've had the best conversation. Rob's had the best conversation. And then I go outside and my kids are like, what the heck? Like we miss speed skating. We're late for the, you know what I mean? I go into the woods on mountain bike, you know, and it's like, I literally forget that. My my wife says, when I go into the woods with my mountain bike, I forget that I'm a married father of five with a day job. Like it's literally like the world. I'm just, I'm a 10 year old kid in the woods and I don't have a concern in the world. So I think, I don't think people know that about me, but then those who know me well are like, oh man, watch out. Like Paul's, my wife describes me as a guy who's like the ultimate sort of a type personality and hyper-organized and really keen and productive. And then sort of like a Zen Buddhist who's literally super happy on the side of a mountain without a clock. So I think that living in those two worlds is something that people don't really know about me. What are some things that you're doing in your life right now that you don't really love? And if you had your way, you would do less of it. Yeah, admin. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a classic. I sort of fall into that mold of the of the entrepreneur who does everything himself, right? And I, you, you know, this is a battle that I think every entrepreneur faces. You know, you sort of you began when you were young. You got, you know, your again. Remember, I said earlier, your asset and your liability, right? So your asset is you can do a lot in a day, and you have a diverse set of skills. And so you just sort of develop this habit starting in your 20s of, I'll just get it done. It's faster for me to do it. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you're in your 40s, you still are in that bad pattern. And it takes you a while before you can actually start outsourcing it. So I would say that I'm in that stage right now where I realize that I spend a lot of time, you know, I still do my own bookkeeping. I still do all my own scheduling. Like I just do some, I just run everything myself because I'm like, ah, it's just faster for me. You know, the, the lie we tell ourselves is it's faster for me to do it than to train somebody else. And that's true in the moment, but it's a short-sighted view. The, the actual way you should look at it, as you know, is you should actually say, yeah, it might take me six months to get someone up to speed on this. But I will say that six months is the equivalent to spending 10 minutes looking at the map before a three-day drive. Spend the 10 it. minutes. Right? So that's that's the thing. If you ask me what's going to be different in my life a year now, like hold, hold me accountable to this. It's I need to have more systems in place that, as a good friend of mine says, that move the boulder when I'm not pushing it. So I would say that's the thing that I need to work on more. The boulder has to move a little more often when I'm not when I'm not the one pushing it. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Am I with my family? Yeah. Gotta be with my family. Yeah. Two two spots jump out. So I loved New Zealand. I went to New Zealand as a, like a single guy a long time ago and just thought it was, you know, it reminded me actually of what Canada's topography was like. But the difference is mm-hmm. instead of being, uh, you know, a wide country apart, that's very narrow, right? You know, I went mm-hmm. to a tour around the South Island of New Zealand. So I think New Zealand's on the list. And then the other spots, spots much closer to home. I love, I love Gatineau Park, which is out in Quebec. You know, my, my wife says like Gatineau Park is like if she ever loses her husband to something, she's like, it'll be Gatineau Park. It's like this beautiful national park just north of Ottawa. It's literally got hills, you know, woods, trails, lakes. It's got everything. And if you threw me in a log cabin in Gatineau Park for a month with my mountain bike and my kids, I may, I may never come out. Awesome. Are there any opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed your mind substantially about? Where you used to think, I used to think this way, but I don't, I don't think this, I don't think that way anymore. I've changed my mind on this. 
Yeah. So there's, there's too many to list, actually. And I don't know if it's been a full 180. I think it's been much more an evolution. And so this goes back to something we talked about earlier in this conversation in terms of things you think when you're young and the things you think when you're old, right? In terms of like my experience with my parents. And you talked about sort of your reluctance to maybe enter into a debate. I actually think debates are the place we should all go to, whether you're debating ideas in your own head or with a close friend or in a group, whatever the case may be. I love challenging my ideas because I think but by default, many of my ideas have to be wrong because I'm, I'm not that smart and I haven't been on this earth long enough. So yeah. I often think of the guy who's entering my mid forties, you know, when I was 25, I thought I knew a lot. And I look back on the 25 year old and I'm like, what a jackass that guy was like, I thought I was smart and I thought I knew all this. And I actually think this is an issue that, you know, and that people who have maybe a, a higher IQ struggle with more, because if you're 25 and you're smart, the world has given you a lot of positive feedback, right? You finish school, you got a good job. The world's sort of telling you, wow, you know, Rob, you're a really bright guy, all this sort of stuff. You, you start to, you know, believe your own press, right? Yeah. I think as you get older, you actually have to change. So I, I look back and I say, I can't believe all the things I thought as a 25 year old that I now realize I think differently about. doesn't mean it's a full 180, but I, I now see so much more. So I'm way more open-minded. I'm way less judgmental. You know, if you're 25 and you see someone who's not healthy, you're like, oh, what are they doing with their life? At 45, you realize, man, people have struggles. These are tough, right? You know, the work that I do, you realize you can have very good intentioned people who raise kids that don't turn out that well. Right. And so you become a lot more open minded to that. And my hope is that when I'm 65, I'll look back and I'll say, man, I thought I was such a smart guy at 45. Jeez, what a moron I was at 45. Right. <laughs> I just hope that gap is a little less wide than it is now. But I actually still want there to be a gap because it means I'm learning. I, I you know, my, my goal is to be learning every single day until the day I'm gone. Right. I love it. A couple more questions. Why did you decide to move to a hobby farm? You'll, you'll appreciate this in light of your question earlier. So I grew up in this immigrant family where I saw my parents working hard every day. You know, my brother and I got picked up from school. You know, I was washing dishes in the restaurant. My brother was being a busboy. He's older than me. And we just saw my parents physically toil and working really hard. And I think that really had a positive impact on me. I'm now raising my kids where I run a business. You know, I, I oversee our family's quarry business, but my kids don't go up there. You know, they go up there, but it's a fun day to see big machines, right? Like it's not, they're not seeing their dad, you know, lift heavy rocks. And then my other business, this main one that I run is me, you know, talking to people all day, right? And I really think, and I have found this in my work, that kids who have a connection to manual labor actually grew up with a high appreciation for the value of a dollar. And so I was very deliberate in saying, I want to go to a hobby farm because my kids will grow up around nature. So I think, you know, for a whole host of reasons, being in nature, whether you buy a hobby farm or just make sure to get out into the woods with your kids is wildly valuable. I learned that lesson again, another conversation, but from the, from the concussion really understood how, how much better my brain did in nature than it did, you know, sort of in the downtown city core of a place, right? Noise, sounds, light, the whole sure. nine yards, right? So, so nature is just to me, just it's where we belong in so many respects, right? Not that I don't enjoy the avails of modern society, but from a kid's standpoint, you know, raising my family, I wanted them to be around nature and have access to nature. You know, my kids have this running joke that dad's always saying, if you want to watch something, don't watch TV, go watch nature, you'll learn more. And I really wanted them to be around an atmosphere where there's work to be done. And, and there is, you know, my, my son said it, one of my sons said it really, really well a couple months after we moved to the hobby farm. We we're out fixing something. I don't know anything about hobby farming. You know, I've tried cattle. We had some horses. I got chickens. I'm a terrible, terrible farmer, um, but I'm going to keep learning it. And I was out with my, one of my sons as we were fixing and solving a problem. He said, dad, at a farm, there's always work to be done and there's always a problem to solve. And I was like, boom, he got it. 
And so I just think that's a great framework for life. And so that's why we made the move that we did. I love it. What is the game seven challenge? Oh, this is, this is a fun project we started a couple of years ago, me and a few friends. So it was basically, it's a way to improve your habits. So if you think about it, this is a great time of year to have this discussion. Everyone's going to roll into, you know, in, in a couple of days and what, you know, eight days, everyone's going to roll into the New Year's and people simply by a changeover in the, you know, the Gregorian calendar, people are now going to miraculously think that the 10 things they haven't done for 10 years, they're going to do all of them, right? So people always end up New Year's set 10 different goals. I know you talked about this recently with, I think, Katie Milkman, right? You know, people yep. go ahead and they set these goals. And then the failure rate is astronomical, I mean, whether it's 80% or 90%, everyone's done by January 15th, give or take. And so, and I'm no different, you know, I wake up every single, you know, you know, year and I think about this. And then a couple of years ago, it dawned on me, you know, you look at the snowball effect, you know, bad patterns snowball, good patterns snowball. But the more important thing is it's your confidence level and your ability to actually make a change in your life that in my mind determines how much change you'll continue to make. So if you think, if the narrative in your mind is every time I try to change something, I fail, over time, you'll just stop trying to change something, right? If the narrative in your mind is every time I try to change something, I can do it, huh, maybe I'll try a little more, a little more. So the Game 7 Challenge was this recognition of this. And I basically started off the year a couple of years ago by saying, I'm no longer going to set this massive list of stuff I want to do. I'm going to pick one thing. It's way better to improve one thing successfully than attempt 10 things unsuccessfully. So it's called Game 7 for a whole host of sort of fun reasons, but it's ultimately the one change challenge. So you pick one thing and it doesn't matter whether it's get up in the morning and have a glass of water or kiss my wife on the cheek or read a book a day. Like you can pick the most monumental thing in the world or the most minuscule. The value is in the process of saying, I'm going to pick one thing and change it. The second part of it is humans do better when we have accountability. When you're only accountable to yourself, there's always an excuse to get out, particularly if you're busy. Well, I'll skip the five push-ups this morning and no one will really know, right? But if you have accountability, you now have to deal with the consequences of telling someone. So the Game 7 Challenge was pick one thing and only one thing tell one person, at least one person, and report back to them with a simple yay or nay every single day. And your success rate increases at an exponential rate when you bring in that accountability and simplify it. So that's the Game 7 Challenge. What made you come up with this idea? Thinking and failing. Failing, right? Like sort of like, you know, Ray Dalio has that great line, right? Which is, you know, progress is pain plus reflection. So I always think about that. Like I, I, I got, you know, so many things I failed at or so many things that I've tried and I haven't been able to do the way I wanted to. And then I really try to sit down and say, what am I learning from this and how can I improve this? And so this was me having this recognition that I had, you know, set a lot of goals in my life and uh, a lot of them I wasn't hitting. And I said, how can I make this better? And that's what led to the game seven challenge. That's cool. Let's, let's hit a uh, rapid fire round as we wrap up. What would your friend say is one of your superpowers? Probably question asking, my sort of insatiable curiosity, just my desire. Yeah. My, my, a good friend of mine says, I used to cross-examine people for destructive you know, purposes, and now I do it for constructive purposes. So I think it's just my ability to sort of get after something and just do it in a way, do it, do it hopefully in an optimal way. We're just asking questions and really try to understand something. So that's what I think Good my heaven. friends would say. They might, they might not be happy about it, but that's what my friends would probably say. You have a great podcast. What, what keeps you up at night? My kids, Rob. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We still have a four and a half year old. I have this great, great running joke on this, which I got from my good friend, Doug, that I mentioned earlier. So he had two kids or has two kids. He's about a couple of years older than me. He said that his, his view was his kids had a little like a running chart. They'd have like offsite meetings. 
where they'd be like, all right, you're on for Thursday. You know, you go wake up mom and dad, right? Okay, good, good. I'll sleep on Friday. You got Thursday. Okay. You know what I mean? And so for me with five kids, these guys are living large. They have their offsite meetings and they only have to wake up during the night every fifth night, but they know it's psychological warfare versus their parents. And so if they just keep us just sleep disruption, sleep disruption, you know, suddenly they get a set of weak parents who are like ice cream for breakfast, whatever. If it'll shut you up, sure. Fill your boots. So break them down. Yeah. So kids and I, and I would say, and figuratively kids are, you know, obviously I think any parent who has young kids, you are always thinking, am I doing a good job? Am I raising them right? You know, is the world going to be safe in 20 years? All that stuff. Right. So I would say that's that's the thing that I think about most. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Yeah. My wife would say just my bikes. I don't, I don't spend a lot of money on myself, but when it comes to bicycles, I do. I love cycling and I'm not mechanically inclined. So I mitigate my lack of, uh, my lack of knowledge about fixing bikes by owning several. And so that way, if it's, you know, I got a two hour window and it's a beautiful fall day, I reach for a bike. It's not working. I go to the next one. So I, I got a, a pretty healthy collection of mountain bikes and gravel bikes and road bikes. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? They never asked me about this, but I wish they did. I don't know if there's a particular topic per se, because I think I've got a pretty wide palette in terms of the discussions that I have during any given you know month or week or whatever it is to be. I think it's more so people don't ask a lot of follow-up questions. Or not that they don't ask it. It's like, it's my nature that if I, again, the three hours in the coffee shop, I want to really understand what's going on. I really, I ask people when I'm asking people questions, I want to know the whole story. Most humans aren't like that. Most people either don't ask questions either because they're not thinking about it or they don't know how, or they're afraid to, you know, all that stuff. Or if they do, they sort of get an answer and then they move on to the next one. And I think I heard you talk about this, right? This idea that most people, I think it was actually it was Strauss Zelnick. I think in your interview with him for your master class, I think he had talked about how for he, I'm paraphrasing here and I'd heard it before, but it's this idea that, you know, most for most people, he talks about the importance of him listening to his team and his staff, right? Most people for them, listening is waiting for their turn to speak. But, you know, listening is actually much different than that, right? Listening is hearing the answer. And that's something I learned. And you're, you're going to be a good cross-examiner. You have to listen to the answers to know how to ask the right questions. So I would say, I find people will ask me questions and they'll get like a first order answer and then they just stop there. Whereas my nature would be like, whoa, there's like, we've got to unpack this here. Like there's a lot to be said here, right? So, but not everyone's wired that way. And so, you know, I just got to deal with it. All right, last question. What's your guilty pleasure? You know, alone in the woods for sure. Just, just being out with my mountain bike for sort of hours on end and just forgetting that I have any cares or concerns. And then I'm a big food guy. I love eating. You know, I, I can, I can, I can take down a lot of calories in one sitting. As I get older, I've realized I, I'm not 21 anymore, so I can't, but I, I, I like, I like a good meal. I, I generally, for the most part, I like good food. My, my weakness is probably uh, a good, good serving of some salty chips. Like you put, you put a bowl of Ruffles potato chips in front of me, particularly if I've been outside for the day and just like if you reach your hand into the bowl, when I'm reaching for it, I will I will knock your hand out of the way. So I'd say I'd say that's the weak spot. And if you're thinking of Christmas with throbs, just send over some potato chips my way. I'll I'll mouth them down, no problem. Dude, this was awesome. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? No, I think it's, uh, you know, I appreciate you having me on. I think it's great. I think you, you do. I've listened to a number of your podcasts. I think you do a great job asking questions. And, uh, you know, if people have follow-up questions, I don't do social media. I'm not, I'm not out there. If people want to reach me, if they have any questions about, you know, anything we've talked about today, I'll give you my email address and you can post that in a link. People can email me. I'm, I'm old school. Uh, I still have a landline. I got a landline, a cell phone, and an email address. I, I communicate that way. I tell people all the time, if you want to get a coffee, come on over to the farm. We'll go for a hike and a coffee. 
uh, or jump on a Zoom call. So I'm, I'm old school that way. And I'm more than happy to answer questions that people have or, or stay connected that way. Paul, this was awesome. Thank you for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.